Hello, film nerds, and welcome to A Very Good Year, the podcast for list queens and release date obsessives, where we invite a guest to pick their favorite year of movies and talk to us about that year. I'm your host, Jason Bailey, and across the mic and across the country from me is my co-host, Michael Hall. Our guest today is uh, is really just a just a, a first-rate film critic, just real good at that job, whose uh, who's work you'll find at The Guardian, Vulture, Inside Hook, The Playlist, Decider, many more. Uh, he's also the author of two books. He wrote about vampire movies in the book of the same name for Little White Lies close-up series, and his new beautiful tome, Colors of Film, The Story of Cinema in 50 Palettes, is out this week. So he's written two books at 30, so I kind of hate him, but I really love him too. Uh, this is Charles Bromesco. Hi, Charles. Hey, thank you very much. That was a, that was a lovely intro, and I, I think very true to who I am in that it couldn't end with like a tiny little uh, little barb <laughs> there that I feel like we're off to a... <laughs> Super strong start. I'm loving it. That's great. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for doing this and making us part of the big promo tour. Um, are you Are you enjoying the the uh, the book writing and releasing process now that you're a veteran? Now that you're no longer a newbie. It's uh yeah yeah you know I I think the exciting part um has yet to happen the way that it's mm-hmm. done because the publisher is British it came out in the UK first and so it is like mm. out but I have not experienced any of that the doesn't outness that yeah exactly yeah that doesn't count we we bleed red white and blue here on a very good year British release dates don't count it's it's the tricky because be you know the British flag Tuesday. is also red white and blue I'm sure that they they would say that Fuck. just as readily about themselves. God damn it. Um, but God no, so I mean, um, at this point next month, but I think around the time when this podcast is released, that's when I'm going to be doing events around town and I'm going to be able to, you know, throw copies of the book at people who uh, are my enemies. And I think Great. that that is when I will really start to enjoy all of this. But um, it yeah. has been nice to see, you know, as early copies have gone out to friends and colleagues that people like it, you know, that's all you want. You write a book for people to like it. It's a very cool book. We're going to we're going to plug it. We're going to give it the full plug uh treatment uh, at the end of the program. Lovely. Um for now, we're going to talk about what year you chose, Charles Bromesco, to uh to walk through with us today and why. So, uh today we are going to be talking about the films uh of the year 1971, which is a very exciting time. In American history, very exciting time in world history. The Summer of Love is now securely in the rear view. The idealism of the 60s has begun to curdle into the solipsistic hedonism of the 70s, and the movies are ready to absorb that. You know, the 70s is a time of great uh, studio allotment of leeway to visionary artists. We, it's, it's a creatively fertile time. Um, but I think I was attracted to 1971 in particular because uh of the many many movies that i love that came out that year and i think we're gonna just run through the insanely stacked lineup that was 1971 uh but the five that i've picked to talk to uh you folks about today are all sort of variations on on a theme and that and this was a sort of libertine time in american history and each of these five movies uh interface with sex and sexuality in hugely different ways that cover this uh, really vast spectrum of social attitudes of uh sort of shifting currents in the industry you can map so much of america's you know changing status in its attitudes about sex and those are articulated through the movies and i think in the five we see here today we see a changing hollywood we see a changing america we see changing women and men 
Uh, we see changing fluids between people where we're going to see uh, <laughs> changes of all sorts. Well, tell me, you know, as I mentioned, you're, you're, you're quite a youthful fellow. Um, and uh, uh, you obviously were not yet of this earth in the year 1971. Um, how did you sort of find this era? How did you find these movies? Like at what age did you sort of start your, your little uh, your, your journey into 70s uh, fandom, if you will? Uh, well, let's say I suppose during high school and college is really when I think a lot of people's cinephilia really takes right. off, and especially considering you know that there is mature content in a lot of these films. I think it was like later into the teen years that I first got. Although I'll tell you what, uh, this is I'll, I'll do the whole story. But I saw Clockwork Orange for the first time when I was thirteen. Of all these five movies, that was the first wow. one I saw. And because I was like you know like like so many red blooded young American boys, I was a Kubrick head. And I had seen <laughs> Doctor Strangelove, which is like one of my favorites of all time. And my mother, who I guess I'm going to the story now, wonderful woman. She was like, oh, you've got to see Clockwork Orange. I saw it. And I was like not <laughs> scandalized at all. I loved it. Did not have yeah. any mixed feelings about this. Really yeah. took it took it so great. Um, and so, yeah, I think uh, it, it, it didn't really become like a sort of coherent intellectual pursuit until around college when I had access to my school Tulane University's huge, really surprisingly vast, considering the size of the film department, uh, DVD library. And I rented so many things there, rented McCabe there, rented Clute there, you know, just trying to like cover my bases on the classics as much as I possibly could. And then uh, Pink Narcissus and Necromania I came to after college when I had learned to traverse the internet, I think more skillfully because those are both <laughs> sort of difficult to find films. And sure. I tracked them down uh just really based on reputation you know of the directors and of the influence that they've had um so it, it, it's really been you know it's been a rich journey is is how <laughs> i would put it a uh, very gradual thing i think it really wasn't until i started working uh like formally you know professionally as a critic which was almost 10 years ago now which is kind of wow. crazy to think about. wow um that i first you know in what you write and what you choose to write about and what you pitch, you start to see the patterns of your own taste emerge and you start to develop aesthetic values and thematic values about, you know, what interests you and what compels you. And I just find that I enjoy watching and writing about movies where people have sex more than the ones where people don't. Sure. So, so this is really just like a golden era for you in terms of uh, of social media. Uh, and, the discourse is killing it right now. <laughs> and meeting like minded folks who uh, who just love watching people fuck on film. Like, I mean, it, it's there's there's no weird reactionary conservatism happening at all in well, our contemporary. You know, culture. The, the the whole thing of discourse is that as many. Th- you know, there, there's a weirdo faction and there's a normal people faction. The first <laughs> off, the weirdo faction is far outnumbered by the normal people faction, and the normal people faction is comprised of the people I know. And the weirdos always seem to be very far off, obscure people who whose doings don't really uh, have much of an impact on me, which is fine, and that's fine. Uh, but the real blessing is that uh, I feel like I've gotten so many of these complaints like really fully out of my system in print over uh, mm. the past, you know, however many years that now that we're here, instead of composing tweets, I can be like, ah, I got to all of this in 2021. I've, I've, right. <laughs> I've said my piece. You know where I stand on the matter. 
Now you'll have a podcast to link to, <laughs> because I don't think there'll be any mistaking your opinion by the time we're done here. <laughs> the piece of the puzzle that you talked about, about the, the DVD library at, at, at your school, that's like, I think is such a key component, uh, you know, when because we always like to talk at the beginning, especially people who were picking yours from before they were active moviegoers, like, you know, how did you get here? How did you arrive at, at you know, sort of loving and understanding this era? And so much of it really is about access, which, you know, is in danger at the moment. Like, you know, the, that there are, on on one hand, more ways than ever um, illegally to see whatever fucking movie you ever want. And uh, but increasingly the, the 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 sort of utopian ideal that we were fed about the ability to see movies legally, streaming services and all that sort of thing is looking pretty fucking dark at the moment. It's very limited, especially, I mean, if, if your priority is seeking out uh, weirdo off the beaten path, uh, esoterica, you're, you know, SOL when it comes to streaming, because these things are difficult, if not impossible to license a lot of services, I don't think would want to be associated with content that is that, you know, whatever X rated, however you want to put it. Um, and so that's tricky. Uh, as a lad in my town, we had a, a video rental store, like so many people, we had a West coast video. Uh, hey. And if you really want to get down to, to the rosebud here uh, as a young lad. So uh, in, in this West coast video, in the back was a room that had pornos in it. Uh, oh, and, yeah. Uh, I would go to look at the comedy section, and then around the corner from that, I would try to peer my head around the corner <laughs> and full of boob. Uh, and these yeah. are experiences that are totally lost on, on young people today, which saddens me. The idea that you're on to waxing, uh, waxing sadly about the young people today um, is delightful. Um, so let's we're, we're going to get into this top five, which you've hinted, hinted around and talked about a bit. Um, before we do, uh, Mike is going to walk us through some of what was happening in a very turbulent world in the year 1971. Here's headlines. All foreign country should not fear. And also, in my new government, I will honor all agreement signed by the former government. Let's kick it off on a on a on a very representative note. Idi Amin became the president of Uganda uh, early in mm. 1971 How'd that after go? deposing Milton Obote, uh, who led the effort to kick out the British. So that was not great for he most was, people. From my understanding, a, a bad fellow, a real no good Nick. <laughs> Although he he did get Forrest Whitaker that Oscar, so who's to he say? He sure did. He was a real a real ne'er do well, as I understand. Yeah, and only had to murder you know who knows how many people to accomplish Boy. that little statue. Uh, Apollo fourteen and fifteen became the third and fourth U.S. missions to land on the moon. All right, uh, fifteen was the first time they used the lunar rover, which incidentally both of my grandfathers worked on in separate departments in Boeing, Wichita. That's very cool. Congratulations, grandfathers! Nice work. Were, were they really resentful of like the first moon crew? They were just like, ah, oh, everyone's obsessed with those assholes, but we. You know, we- <laughs> We got the rover up there. We sure did. They were not the type of gentlemen to express those feelings. Fair <laughs> enough. Sure. That got held in. Uh, the NASDAQ Composite Index debuted in 1971, and we had yet another way to confuse quantity for quality. I still, <laughs> a gun to my head, I can't tell you what the NASDAQ Composite Index means. I have no idea. Gun to my head, I can't tell you why you should learn. 
The Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI broke into Fed offices in Media, Pennsylvania, and stole a ton of information that proved the existence of programs like COINTELPRO. Uh, if you've never heard of this stuff, look it up. This is one of those things that is 100% real, but sounds like a lunatic conspiracy theory. So that's why they needed the paperwork to prove it. Terrific documentary called 1971. Like, that's the title of the thing that is all about yep. the Media, Pennsylvania break-in, and I recommend it uh, highly, highly, highly. Uh, it's just a great story. It's just a fantastic story about a, a bunch of people who decided they did not give a fuck. <laughs> and let's go break into an FBI office. How can you measure the jeopardy that I'm in, uh, whether it's 10 years, 20 years, 115 years, or other ludicrous uh, amounts like that, to the penalty that has been paid uh, already by 50,000 American families here and hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese families? It would be absolutely presumptuous of me to pity myself in that context, then I certainly don't, and I'd be ashamed of myself. In that same vein, later the same year was the release of the Pentagon Papers behind the bravery of American hero Daniel Ellsberg about a similar level of fuckery going on overseas. Yep. And basically sort of the way we get lied to. And so, yeah, I mean, you see, like, national confidence in institutions and the government just, like, totally eroded upon, you know, being exposed. That is just everything you are fed is is a lie to serve very shadowy interests. Yep. And now let's watch the movies about it. <laughs> I think one of the things that helped, you know, sort of really tank the whole situation was, you know, both of these things went back into to Johnson's administration. And like, there's no doubt that Nixon was turned it all up and, you know, is a terrible person. But they both let J. Edgar Hoover just do whatever he wanted. And mm -hmm. when it sort of becomes very clear that it wasn't, you know, it was a bipartisan fuckery, uh, it gets, you know, I mean, who do you trust in that case, right? U.S. Army, God, the, just the hits keep coming. U.S. Army Lieutenant William Calley was found guilty of being a serial killer for the My Lai massacre, but he was pardoned later, like some kind of cop. Hot take. Fuck that guy. Fuck William Calley. I, I don't care for him. <laughs> That's I a don't bold care stance, but you know what? I, I applaud you, and I'm right there with you. Um, Cancel me if you must. Cancel <laughs> I mean, me that's what's the crazy thing to think is that in 71, there were like definitely a huge faction of Melee apologists who were like, ah, oh, yeah. you do what you do. And it's like, I think it's easy to have moral clarity about this stuff now, but it's, you know, it would have been mm -hmm. just brain melting in 71 to be hearing people uh, defending that. I don't yeah. know. Hey. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing is, like, it wasn't, you know, th there were a lot of people and that still was the official line. But Vietnam wasn't actually going well and people weren't really buying it anymore by this time. That's the sort of collapse in trust we talked about. There's a Harris poll where 60 percent of Americans said we should get out of Vietnam. And there was 12,000 people arrested in May Day anti-war protests mm. that year. You know, so there was a, a loud voice of dissent. I, I remember learning about this in the greatest beer run ever starring Zac Efron. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of discussion about this. <laughs> what should have been in that movie was the passage of the 26th Amendment, lowering the voting age from 21 to 18, Yay! Uh, which came on the back of a lot of boys being drafted by a government they couldn't vote against. Boo. D.B. Cooper stole $200,000 and parachuted out of a passenger plane, never to be seen again. He is a local hero where I live, so we got to shout out D.B. Cooper. Remember when everybody was convinced that that was going to be the end of Mad Men? Remember when that was like I, the I will big say theory? that all of this like is Tara <laughs> dream talk reminds me so much of the is Megan Sharon Tate thing where I was like, <laughs> and everyone came out of that looking so smart. All of the people yeah. who were on top of that. Um. This is what happens when a good show comes on after Lost has like rotted all of our brains. So this is what someone else said to me that like this is absolutely Lost mentality, which is. Um, yes. 
I, I've never been into Lost, I think, for that exact reason. that Like, the compulsion to solve art, I was like, just, uh, it turns me off. It bumps me out. The latest estimated total dead uh, is 37, which includes nine hostages. Uh, there is some question now about the uh, if everything is totally secure. Uh, we do have indications that uh, there may be some people left in uh, two buildings. And finally, 1971 was the Attica Prison Rebellion at Attica Prison in New York. And there were some documentaries that came out about that. Your buddy made, here, your buddy made the Attica movie, right? <laughs> this is my buddy who made the Attica oh, movie. Oh, it was you who did it. He did. What did. Did. <laughs> oh, I, I had no idea until, uh, until right now. That was, I could tell because it was like a genuine reaction. Yeah. That yeah, was yeah. real. Good movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> do, do, Mike, do a proper plug, please, for anyone who's who's, who's not aware. Uh, I made a movie called Betrayal at Attica that is a documentary about the Attica Prison Rebellion, and it's on HBO Max. And it is the perspective of one particular lawyer who worked on the case for more than 40 years. She is extremely partisan. <laughs> it is not pretending to present uh, both sides of the conversation. But, you know, I worked on this thing for eight years and everything she said was true. So there we go. It's always nice when people like it. It's a fucked up thing, though, because nobody can be like, good movie, because it's not. It's really fucking sad. What you can say is, well-made movie. Well, yeah, there I mean, you go. You know, you and that's always well- sort of an awkward conversation. <laughs> it's not like, oh, I loved it. I guess it's not that. You could say good exactly. movie. It's like you did a good job <laughs> making that movie. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. Yes. Thank you very much. Uh, 1971 was the first Earth Day, as declared by the UN, and Greenpeace started being annoying to the worst people in the best ways. Yay! Uh, FedEx was founded in 1971, and the first Starbucks opened in Seattle, Washington. And you can complain about that if you want, but that just means you never drank gas station coffee in the 90s. Why can't I just uh, in, go in and get a coffee? Just a coffee-flavored coffee. I tell, I tell him to give me the Jerry Salts. I say, just give me six lukewarm <laughs> gas station coffees, which I will reheat at my convenience. NPR was founded in 1971 and All in the Family debuted. Good show. Good show. Classic stuff. Channel. A lot of people you've heard of were born in 1971, but I'm only going to list the ones I like. Mary J. Blige, uh, Regina King, Pep Guardiola, Amy Poehler, Snoop Dogg, Erica Badu, Rosanna Thomas, better known as Chili from TLC, also Left Eye, uh, Method Man, Peter Sarsgaard, John Hamm, Keegan-Michael Key, Ewan McGregor, Selena, Sofia Coppola. So this is why uh, they're called the greatest generation, Jax, (laughs) because they have so many great people. I was just going to say, right? uh, Method Man, Peter Sarsgaard, John Hamm, and Keegan-Michael Key would be the dream blunt rotation I'd pull out of that <laughs> list. You that's that's going to be my bachelor party. Those are, those are my boys. Go. There you go. <laughs> also, uh, Sofia Coppola, Tupac Shakur, Missy Elliott, MF Doom, uh, Yolanda Whitaker, better known as the fantastic groundbreaking rapper Yo-Yo. You can't play with her Yo-Yo. Yo, yo. yo yeah, yo. you cannot. Still. Yo. Uh, and my personal all-time favorite rapper, Big Pun, who died young, and then his wife made a documentary with a bunch of surveillance camera footage of him beating her up, and now his son makes records about what a shitty daddy was, so never meet your heroes, because they're probably garbage. Wow. What a what a winding arc that man has had. Frazier is the winner! Frazier is the winner! Four rounds! Eleven rounds for Frazier! Four rounds! Joe Franco, who retains his heavyweight title. Champion of the world, Joe 
Korea, Muhammad Ali was beaten. Joe Frazier beat Muhammad Ali at Madison Square Garden in the first of their three-fight rivalry. Bullshit. Uh, Jason Bullshit. doesn't care. There's no movies about that one, so he doesn't. No, no, not I'm, interested. Excuse me. I, there is literally a documentary about every major Muhammad Ali fight. I've seen them all. <laughs> this one was bullshit. Ali won. That's all. Go ahead. I'm just. I uh, I went to high school with a girl named Allison Frazier, and she went by Ali, and everyone called this girl <laughs> Ali Frazier. Uh, my father got a real kick out of that. <laughs> Thus concludes uh, Charles' Bucks contribution to the sports section. Of thank the you, show. thank you. That was a good one, though. I mean, if you're yeah. only gonna have one, yeah. uh, the Bucks swept the Bullets to take their first NBA championship. Uh, Cannonero two won the Belmont and the Derby, but not the Preakness. Oh, and I took such a bath from the bookies on that one. <laughs> yeah, it was a tough one. In international swimming, U.S. swimmer Mark Spitz set the world record for the 200 meter butterfly, only to have the record beat four days later by a German. Oh, so that was tough for it him. Would be a German. And uh, Germans. Satchel Paige was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame, the greatest player to ever play the game. His career started in the Negro Leagues when he was a teenager. And then he was a professional baseball player for more than 40 years. Uh, there are stories that he used to come out to pitch and all the, the guys on his team in the infield would literally just sit down and start like smoking and eating sandwiches and shit because he would strike <laughs> everybody out and then they would just go up for their turn to bat again. Nice. So uh, that is that's the end of sports and that's the end of headlines. All right. Thank you for the headlines, Mike. And now uh, we're thrilled to present our very first word from our sponsor, hey. uh, which is exciting. Yeah, it's a pretty damn good sponsor, if I, if I can brag just a little bit. Uh, Mike, go, go right ahead. Discover something new at the 52nd edition of New Directors, New Films, presented by the Museum of Modern Art and Film at Lincoln Center. Woo, fancy. Fancy. From March 29th through April 9th, experience what Hyperallergic calls one of New York's most exciting film festivals. Accurate. With 27 features and 11 shorts from 35 countries, immerse yourself in new and emerging voices in cinema with prize-winning films from Cannes, Locarno, Sundance, and many feature debuts. Get tickets and learn more at newdirectors.org. And now, time for a, just, I think, pound for pound, the filthiest top five we've ever had. <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, here we go. Top five. And Charles Romesco, uh, we decided to do these in a, in a, a, a rough chronological, chronological order. Approximate a, chronological order. An approximate chronological order of their release through the year 1971, which is a new approach to the to the rundown, and I applaud it. So I'm not I'm not uh, good at ranking and picking favorites. It makes I I I, I can't do it. Gives gives you the hives. Um, all right. Well, then, starting towards the beginning of the year, which uh, what was the first of your five favorite films released in the year 1971? So I believe that May, spring is sprung, everything's in bloom, and it's the perfect time for a film called Pink Narcissus. lush, verdant, just virile film 
uh, to arrive. This is a. <laughs> I, I think that's a that's a fair way to describe. It's it quite is. fecund. Yeah, it's quite fecund. This movie. Oh my god! Ooh, I love that. It is fecund. Uh, directed by James Bidgood, who uh, was a filmmaker, photographer. You know, he he was a uh, multimedia artist, and you see all those disciplines coming into play on this film, which is a uh, very very short, kind of like very loosely structured film. It's only seventy one minutes, uh, in which we see a very handsome male. I suppose uh, gigolo would have been the term that they would have used at the time, or trick, I suppose, would have been the lingo at the time. Sex work. I, I, uh, by any I think name. gigolo is such a is, is just such a specific uh, term of art. I think I think we'll honor him with that. I wonder if it does. Ugh, I should have Googled this. I don't know if a gigolo ministers to women or what. My point being oh, a, 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 a very comely wan sort of a sex worker uh, named John is just sort of lost in reverie in his apartment. Uh, and, and he fantasizes about all of these different scenarios in which he assumes all these different roles that are sort of, you know, a role play that he has in, in his own mind, uh, but that Bidgood also has with genre. We see him, what are, what are the different ones? He is a matador in one. He's a sexy matador. He is a slave boy in uh, the Roman Empire. And he also plays the emperor who who uh, is sort of yelling at the slave boy uh, <laughs> so he gets to be both the dom and the sub you can have it all because the it's dream in his yeah. mind yeah of course yeah. and um there's another one where they're like in i suppose in arabia sort of situation and so we get all of these different like uh flavors of exotification that are played as high camp uh because that is really the sensibility that's at at play here uh it was all shot you know on this very small not even a soundstage it was in um a bit goods manhattan or i don't think if it was a loft he was living in but it was yeah no i'm sorry it was in his apartment i'm 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 looking this up as i'm talking but uh it was all shot in his apartment on sets that he and his buddies built themselves you can see that it is very low budget but that every dollar has been stretched to within an inch of its life uh because the artifice works for the movie we get all these gorgeous i say soundstage because that's the style you know i think it, it wants to look like one of the beautiful old hollywood movies on you know a sort of art freak 60s budget um even though it was 71 he's still very much a creature of the 60s bit good in his kind of artsy experimentalism um and it's just you know it's it's such a visually rich movie it's such a sexy movie and uh upon watching it you know before this because it had been a while uh i i realized that basically every contemporary director who i like has clearly watched this like 10 times like this is all over peter strickland all over gregor rocky sure. like it's sure. um yeah god it's so good i think i don't know if he's one of your favorites but i i was really struck in terms of the stretching of the low budget and the handmade feel of it that there's something sort of michel gondry-ish about it perhaps? I, yeah i would not be surprised he's a he's a yeah. frenchman he's a pervert i interviewed him once and he talked to me about cranking it as a child so <laughs> that, that, that all squares yeah all scans all of it scans um and uh and you say that this is this though is one that you that just sort of came into your uh, came on your radar in recent years. How how yeah. how do you find this movie? How does this movie or how does this movie find you? I guess is the more well. So I mean, the question. sad thing is this is that this uh, there was a time when you would have gone to like a seedy little theater and you could have right. seen this movie in a crowd full of people, you know, jerking off in their trench coats. Uh, <laughs> but in our age of digital enclosure, we have to tromp through the seedier back alleys of the internet to find yep. these things uh i think i i don't think it's 
public domain or whatever, but I do think it's like in the internet archive, which is a very easy and above board way to access these things. Um, but it's in a really low quality. Uh, I would love to see it restored and spiffed up, but I do think that um, the legalities of that are probably tricky. All right. Well, anybody uh, who's listening from Vinegar Syndrome or or KL Studio Classics or any of the more daring uh, home media labels, look into it. Let's let's make this one happen. Let's do this one for Bromesco. Um, Charles, what it, then is your number four? Uh, or no, I, I guess we're I guess doing it backwards. Two. Your number two, the the, the second of uh, chronologically released of your films from 1971. Uh, so what's the next one is McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Yeah. Uh, is there something I can do for you? Do you have anything to eat? I'm bloody starving. Took six hours to get up here in that flipping contraption. Uh, well, you have to forgive me. My kitchen ain't in operation yet, but, uh, I, I could take you up to the restaurant up there if you're hungry enough. I'm hungry enough. I could eat a bloody horse. Well, Sheehan's place, you probably will. <laughs> Not the front of your wit, I see. We're in June, and although we have a very frosty movie, uh, so I just love the idea that this was a June release. This is Bob Altman's summer blockbuster. This is you know, it's it's summer counter programming. <laughs> although, I mean, I say that the the studio, which was who uh, Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers, maybe yeah, they had yeah. high hopes for this because Altman was coming in hot off Mash. He had proven that yep. he was capable of making a broadly entertaining movie, and that made like three times its budget, which at you know uh, at the time was so much money. Um, and so he was given a fair amount of leeway, but, uh, this movie was also the result of much contention between him and the studio. He had, a, as you can see, when you look at the movie, very, very particular ideas about how he wanted to expose these frames. Uh, the sort of fogging effect was a result of exposing, uh, the film strip itself to light in the process of development to sort of smudge everything up. Um, and the studio was so opposed to this because they were like, people won't be able to see shit. It, it, it'll look terrible. <laughs> uh, that Altman yeah. actually exposed the original negatives onto the light, not one of the prints of the film so that they couldn't do anything about it. They, uh, they were helpless at that point. Um, but I mean, no, it's an amazing film. Warren Beatty is a sort of, uh, hustler type who rolls into this Western town and promptly sets up a brothel with the help of the titular Mrs. Miller, who is played by Julie Christie. And together they, um, not only are they very canny business partners and they immediately raise the standard of sex work in this town. They sort of clean things up. They make it safer. They make it more hygienic. Um, they uh, have a very sort of complexly intimate relationship <laughs> themselves. Uh, he, yeah. I think we see in the two of them a lot of respect for, for two people who have probably not commanded respect from a lot of people in their lives. I think it's kind of beautiful the way that they see each other's skill sets, which are kind of like, you know, these are low down skills, but they see the virtue in them. They see the beauty in them, which I find deeply moving. Um, and then also, I mean, this is Altman first getting a sense for his technique for like exploring the social organism as an ensemble. We get uh, all over this little Western town that's uh, tucked away in the snow. We see the little lives of these people. Keith Carradine's in it, Michael Murphy, Shelley Duvall, uh, all of these people. Rene Aubergenois is so good is that how you pronounce it Aubergine <laughs> yes it is okay. no no you were right the first time yeah yeah no it's it really is the altman stock company really sort of coming together um for the for the first time a few of those folks are in mash but this is the crew you know that he sort of picked up from brewster mcleod and a couple of other places yeah, and yeah. 
And this was the first one that we see him experimenting with what would become his signature uh, sound editing and mixing techniques of getting everyone with body mics and mixing all of the dialogue together like that. Um, yeah, and, and you know, it, it's also this being 1971. It is a kind of countercultural uh, revisionist western in that uh, once Warren Beatty and Julie Christie have set up this really, you know good concern for themselves they're running you know a a clean version of what was considered a dirty business at the time uh sinister corporate interests roll into town uh if you've anyone listening has seen deadwood it is basically like seasons two and three of deadwood uh and they basically just try to crush the you know uh earnest business being done there with their power and influence they kill everyone who they need to kill and we see that this is a pretty clear-cut case of individuals versus institutions and uh which you know very much in keeping with the spirit of the time yeah the other thing that i love so much about this movie and that i focused on in this last rewatch for the show is just that like warren Beatty's, uh, he could only in the 70s can you have a man as beautiful as warren Beatty consistently just play an absolute dipshit bullshit artist like and do it so well he's so and 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 sort of for a man who reportedly had a a not unhealthy ego it's a really you know uh narcissism free approach to sort of like how he's willing to be presented on screen my favorite moments in this movie are when he's just like clearly in way over his head and trying to stay afloat and failing miserably He's a he's a huge idiot, which is uh, what I think really makes the grand finale so rich, which is like in Western tradition, it ends yeah. with a gunfight, but it is like such a clumsy, sloppy, like it is strewn with mistakes and false moves. It is a really poorly done gunfight. I, I mean, it's, it's directed perfectly, but it, sure. it is such an unskilled way to end this movie that uh, it's he's he's subverting, you know, uh, at every turn. So that is a just a stone cold masterpiece out on I believe we said we said June 24th of 1971. Charles Romesco, what came out the very goddamn next day? The very next day, uh <clears throat> which I I kind of can't believe this because you would think that we we don't get major movies just released on Tuesday or Wednesday unless it's holiday beginning more. Uh but it was Clute, it was Alan Pacula's Clute. Bree Daniels, Girl on the Brink. Somewhere among her clientele is a freak who murders call girls. Sit down. And a wholly incredible cop who insists her life is worth saving. I don't think he's going to come back again. I just don't want to be alone right now. Don't be afraid. Starring Jane Fonda and Donald Sutherland as one of the most uh, indelible screen couples of the era. <laughs> uh, we get, you know, as we were talking before about the seeds of paranoia and all of these abuses of of power at the highest halls of, uh, of authority. And we see those all sort of come to bear in the plot for Clute, which sees a government... Uh, uh, I guess a functionary. I don't know what you would call him, what his official title is, but he is spearheading a conspiracy to eliminate all of these different sex workers who have been involved with this uh, violent, abusive guy uh, who has been going under the name of a politician. And so as Detective uh, Clute, Detective uh, Mr. Clute, I I was about (laughs) to do Trump voice and say Mr. Clute, but I'm not going to. 
<laughs> Many people are saying Mr. Clute. Mr. John Clute. No, it's... Uh, <laughs> He comes in from Pennsylvania. He's kind of a small town guy. And in many ways, he is scandalized uh, first by the big city of New York, which as we are shown, uh, it's the 70s. So it is an amoral yeah. pit of sin, baby. Yeah. Uh, but he is first scandalized by uh, Jane Fonda as Brie Daniels, uh, who is a very shrewd sex worker who has uh, her own pursuits and interests. She is uh, attempts acting and modeling, although she finds those both to be very you know, unrewarding. She finds them that they are not really, I mean, she's not in control. She's not in control uh, in those situations in the way she can be in sex work, which is like a really sort of uh, incredible idea to, to hear in a major studio picture in 71. That's, I mean, Pacula is a, and and we see this so early in the movie. I think it's like first 10 minutes, but his most daring suggestion, we cut uh, a scene of Brie with one of her clients to her at an audition. And the clear illustration here, Mark Harris wrote about this really well in his uh, essay for Criterion on the film. Uh, But we see that to Brie Daniels going on these acting auditions is far more dehumanizing than sex work, which seems like a matter of fact thing to think about now, but at the time would have been a really radical proposition um and the the rich humanity of her character i think is a service to her profession we see that although she has a complex relationship with her work she likes the power that it affords her she likes that she really knows who she is while she's doing it it's also a sort of solitary profession necessarily and she uh struggles with these feelings of loneliness that we hear her talk about uh usually in voiceover to her therapist um and so it's it's you know just Dialogue is fantastic. Unbelievable acting from the both of them. I'll tell you what, yeah. John Clute is a very McCabe type guy because he is someone who ultimately recedes into the background as the film yes. realizes uh, that he is not the whole point of what's going on. Uh, both sort of, I guess, yeah, like passive-ish, very uncertain characters. Um, and I'll tell you what, the 70s was a great time to be a beta male. <laughs> that's what no i was gonna say i mean that that, that connection <laughs> wouldn't have occurred to me but that really is that speaks to the sort of more complicated way that we were thinking and talking in in fiction and in in film and in mass culture about these very well-established uh notions of masculinity of what it was you know the the idea of what it was to be a man was really being grappled with in the 70s in a way that it had not been. You can see previously. this physically, especially because you think about like who are the standard bearing sex symbols of that time. It's like Elliot Gould, Donald Sutherland. And you can see yeah. include both of the, or you, you know, Donald Sutherland include, but in these movies, he's a wiry, hairy, yeah. like very unathletic looking guys. I maybe some, I some of my fascination with the 70s is that yes. I know I would have just been crushing it all the time in the 70s. Um, <laughs> if I had been around, that really would have been a golden time. And also, I yeah. mean, like my remark on this, there's a lot of overlap with Jewishness that like uh, being a neurotic sure. and intellectual had a lot of purchase at the time, which I really missed the boat on that one. But no, I mean, um, Sutherland is fantastic and Jane Fonda is just unbelievable. Um, she... And- tried as hard as she possibly could to get out of doing the role, but Pacula basically forced her kicking and screaming uh, onto set to do it. And even then she, she didn't think she could. She spent eight days hanging out with working girls around New York. And everyone said that she just didn't have the temperament. She, I think 
Although she exuded sex, she had already been in Barbarella by this time, I believe. Right. Uh, oh, she, yeah. I think, lacked grit, is what people believe, that she didn't seem streetwise or, or who knows what. But she put in the work. She was you know, a very studied, methodical, if not actually literally uh, adhering to the method, very methodical actress. And she put in all the work required to just bring so much to the psychological realism of, of uh, this character. Yeah, it's a great performance. You know who else is great in the movie who I, I borderline forget is in it every time I watch it, but like those just one or two scenes that Roy Scheider is in. Yeah. Like, holy shit. Holy shit, he's so menacing and he was scary money in and the great. bank in the seventies. Like he was yes, like he very was. much the Michael Shannon of his moment where you could stick him anywhere and he was just like elevating your movie. He's so good at Marathon <laughs> Man, like he's so good yeah. at everything. Yeah, that's an excellent comparison. All right, so that's th- those are our, our summer pictures. Uh, what was the big What was the big holiday treat for uh, for for nineteen seventy one audiences? Charles Romesco. It's uh, it's you know Kubrick is responsible for two of history's greatest Christmas movies: Eyes Wide Shut <laughs> and A Clockwork Orange, which came out uh, in late December nineteen seventy one. There was me, that is Alex, and my three droogs, that is Pete, Georgie, and Dim. <laughs> Go on, do me in your cars. He's enterprising, aggressive, young, bold, vicious. You are to be performed. What exactly is the treatment here going to be then? Just going to show you some films. Have your holiday ham, open your presents, and then, you know, head off to the movie house to see the new Kubrick. I'm a big believer in profane Christmas movies. In two consecutive years, my me and my sister and her ex, uh, when we were at my parents in Massachusetts, we saw Django Unchained one year, and then we saw Wolf of Wall Street the next year. And I was like, this is a good good way yeah. to sort of undo family time. Uh, no, but Clockwork Orange, which uh, is just such a... Uh, chillingly precise movie this is kubrick where it's yeah. like he's beginning his really like gloweringly serious phase that would carry him through the 70s yeah. and 80s we see i think the first real instance of you know the quote-unquote kubrick stare the low angle up from the eyebrows evil uh malcolm mcdowell as alex de large kind of look uh you know this is a movie that so many cinephiles come to young because i think it presents really daring ideas that resonate with angry young men. It's very much about it's, that mentality. It seems, yeah. And yeah. Yeah. It seems dangerous. Like, like it's, it's a movie that like you're sort of warned about, which is the easiest way to get a young person to want to see a movie. Of course. I mean, it, it was hugely scandalous at the time and, and rightly so uh, the uh, notorious rape scene when you watch it still, I think holds all of its terrible power. Uh, the sort of like seasick careening camera movement and like the evil glee that we see on Malcolm McDowell. These are eternal things. You watch it and it's still, it is sickening in the same way that we see he is eventually sickened after he's uh, subjected to the brainwashing Ludovico process. Um, and, you know, it ends as a film about free will, but I think before that it has 
so much um, open-mindedness in it, the way it explores the temptation of like these extreme mm. behaviors that Alex has drawn into his whole life is sex and violence. The, uh, the sped up sequence where he bangs those two girls is just like one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my entire life. Um, and so you see like, you know, it's, it's essentially a movie about being a punk and Kubrick, I think believes in the lure of doing that. He gets why someone would mm. do that. And he wants to convey that before showing, you know, the, the cruelty with which it can be wiped out. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's still, it still packs a punch. It's still, there's, there's still, uh, it, it still yeah. kicks you in the gut. I always forget that he asks for it. The, the Ludovico? That he asks for the treatment. Yeah. You know, it's that like, send me to boot camp. You know, I'd rather do six weeks than six years or whatever. Right. And, and especially in the circles I run in, this movie tends to get sort of one of the ways people talk about it is the sort of authoritarian nature of the criminal justice system mm. in the movie. Right. And I think there is obviously a lot of that in it. But every time I watch it, I'm like, fuck me. He begged for this. <laughs> <laughs> like, I always forget about that part. Yeah. And that's such a, like, sort of intellectually tricky and, and such a tricky sort of part of the storytelling of it. <clears throat> it's a small moment, but it, it sort of it really resonates all over the rest of the, the movie from that point forward. He's really. Yeah, I mean, he has this kind of like nihilistic flippant quality to him where he's mm -hmm. like, how bad could it possibly be? Which of course the answer is like worse than you could possibly imagine. Literally worse than you can imagine because <laughs> if he could have conceived of that, he wouldn't have done it. Um, right. Yeah. And I mean, you get all these uh, fantastic parodies of like British manners when he's staying with his mom and his uh, shitty stepdad who he hates. Who's just like a character. This is like a Monty Python character, basically. Yes. <laughs> God, I love that movie. All right. So uh, so that was our chronological rundown of four. The, the fifth film on your list, uh, we were unable to successfully Google a an accurate uh, release date. And uh, once we talk a bit about the movie, you'll perhaps understand why. I think I think it makes a lot of sense because this is a movie, if nothing, characterized by uncertain releases. I, uh, <laughs> the... I, uh... <laughs> What uh, is the number is five? Film, uh, this is uh, a, a film by Ed Wood uh, later in his career, at which point he was uh, very going, late. It was uh, very late. And no, I mean, he would actually, because he was so crazily prolific, I do think he made a bunch more after this one uh, before his death in 78, seven years later. Uh, but so, yeah, this movie, Necromania. Feels inviting. You wouldn't know what to do with a bed if you did try it out. I sure wish you'd stop trying to insult my manhood. Manhood? Ha! Huh. That's what we came here for. To get you a manhood. A witch. Bullshit. Madam Heels is not a witch. She's a necromancer. That still spells witch to me. W-I-T-C-H, witch. Directed by Ed Wood under the name of uh, Don Miller. Uh, and it's a very simple setup. Uh, we have a all-American wholesome couple, Danny and Shirley, that are driving around in California. And they just kind who, of... Who absolutely oh. loathe each other. Just, yes. just, hey, just <laughs> never miss an opportunity to just stick in the shiv and turn. Yeah. It's very much like it's the same as the stand-up comedy thing of just like, don't you just hate having a wife? And I think uh, <laughs> this movie needs that so that all the infidelity plays. Otherwise, you're like, oh, no, they're marriage. Um, yep. 
But so, yeah, no, this it's, it's basically the plot of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, if you've ever seen that, where there is a couple that just drives and for, you know, uncertain reasons enters a house where they're promptly separated and uh, independently seduced by the weirdo nymphomaniac residents of this uh, of this house of, of sin. And so in this one, uh, this is a literal hardcore porn. You see uh, full penetration, which by in this point in Ed Wood's career, he you know went where the money was. I think he knew where his bread was going to mm-hmm. be buttered, and it wasn't with sci-fi. Yeah, is it commonly known that he did that? Barely. Uh, I, I think insofar as anything about Ed Wood is commonly known, right? right? If if you Fair know, <laughs> like those of us who know about Ed Wood knew about right. it, but <laughs> if you give him a Google, it's right there on his on his Wikipedia, um, and. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, if, if you've seen the movie about Edward, you've probably got an impression of this, but he was someone who had just a huge enthusiasm for the craft of making cinema. And in this film, uh, which is also true of so many of the movies made during the so-called golden age of porn in the 70s, where there is just such uh, a... a amateurishness but within that you see this earnest excitement about the craft of movie making about you know just getting the lights getting the camera uh just putting on a show with you know whatever shoestring budget you could put together uh we see you know there are these really harsh glaring overhead lights we get all these inelegant close-up shots of taints and uh balls and and things like that (laughs) and there's just uh so much human imperfection to this that i think has been scrubbed out of a lot of the porn made today which is uh uh, not only digitized and so the picture has been sort of uh, sanitized in a way but also sure. the human body man it's like it is different now everyone looks like the terminator or like the lady terminator <laughs> uh and back then people just look like people you look at these people you're like damn yes. that that is a that's a human body right there um yeah and i and I, I mean i don't mean to paint with a broad brush if you watch pornography you can see that every single human body uh un, under the sun is represented there but uh i guess just hairlessness i suppose is what i'm talking about hairlessness <laughs> and uh and openness to body fat uh, which were both you know, in vogue uh, at the time. And you see that in the movie. And, you know, I uh, I feel wistful about it. <laughs> I will say, you know, the, the, the picture we should also note does open with one of my all-time favorite now opening credit cards, which is the cast of our film, which is to remain anonymous. Yes, that's it's just fantastic. Like, <laughs> I was just like, okay, all let That's how them, you know it's on. That's how you know it's going to be good. Right. It's, it's that announcement and when at the top of a movie they say that it's going to include stroboscopic effects and you should leave if you're prone to seizures. I'm like, let's go. <laughs> let's go. Preferably both all right well that is a a beautiful and eclectic top five list charles romesco so thank you for bringing it to us i don't know that i ever would have made my way to necromania otherwise um not a lot of wood completists out there because he made so many terrible movies (laughs) i i have seen most of them and i had seen uh take it out in trade thanks to its recent blu-ray release uh, a couple years back um but i will just tell you i was so relieved when i because i i saw the list i had an initial reaction to that title and then i looked it up was like oh god no i was mixing it up with necromantic Okay, thank goodness. Yes, let's watch the Ed Wood porn movie. Let's <laughs> not watch Necromantic. I, I don't know um, what Necromantic is, I'm going to be honest. Okay, you should Google it after the show sure. and just do with that information what you will. Let's I find shall. out what films were winning trophies and making money. Here's Awards and Box Office. Sell out with me, oh yeah. Sell out with me tonight. The record company's only Top of the list. 
Best Picture, Best Director for William Friedkin, Best Actor for Gene Hackman, Best Adapted Screenplay for Ernest Tidyman, lovely name, won all but the last at the Golden Globes for Drama, French Connection. Charles, how do you feel about the old French Connection? I, I mean, I, I'm going to have the same thing to say about about like two dozen movies right now. Fantastic film. Uh, yeah. Obviously, needless to say, I love uh, French Connection. Might might be in my top five for that year, but didn't really fit with the theme I was going after. But uh, no, <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Not, not a lot of fucking in the French Connection, if memory Thank serves. Thank God. That's the problem with Gene Hackman movies. Not enough Gene Hackman nudity. <laughs> um, but uh, no, oh my God, like the train car chase is un- unbelievable, Unim- obviously. Unimpeachable. That's been talked about uh, enough. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Best actress went to Jane Fonda, also at the Golden Globes for drama, uh, for Clute. Uh, well deserved. Best actress for that performance oh, yeah. she got. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Well deserved. Yeah, yeah. Best supporting actor went to Ben Johnson. Best supporting actress went to Cloris Leachman. Thank God for that sentence I just said. Mm-hmm. Uh, Johnson also won the Golden Globe for the Last Picture Show. Last oh Picture Show is that's that's a uh, that's a motion picture right there. That's a uh, that's a a, a, a a complicated slice of nostalgia that is coming of age in all of its ickiness. Dying America. You see a small town mm. America getting hung out to dry and withering on the vine. Mm-hmm. Dying cinema television beginning to uh, invade that space. Yeah. Civil Shepherd yeah. just, you know, like exploding my brain. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild when you, you know, a ch- a child of the eighties like myself and you first know Sybil Shepherd from Moonlighting. <laughs> and then you're like, no, look at this. Look at, look at Sybil Shepherd when this movie came out. And it's, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. Didn't the last movie come out in 1971 too? There, yes. It, Similar it title. Indeed. Totally different movie. <laughs> it is. That's wild that, that, that nobody blinked on that. Very one, different it? movie. <laughs> Very different movie. All right. What else? Best original screenplay went to Patty Chievsky. He also won best screenplay at the Globes for the hospital. Uh, Charles, you seen the hospital? Uh, I'll be honest. I actually haven't. Arthur Heller. Uh, who's yeah. Wonderful. You know, um, uh, George C. It's Scott is super George cool. George C. Scott. Very good. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's worth seeing, but when you watch it now, like it's very much like, oh, this was his dress rehearsal for network. Uh, you know, yeah, like okay. the, 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 the things that movie does brilliantly, this movie does pretty well because Arthur Hiller, God bless him, is no Sidney Lumet. What else you got? Mike? Best original song. Oh, here's another great thing to say. Also, best score at the Globes went to Shaft. A One fucking, of the- I mean, not of course it did, but it should have. <laughs> from Shaft. One of the one of the few times that the that the best song award went to the right fucking song. Hooray for that. I mean, I, f- I feel like they were still giving it to like some real treacly shit oh, yeah. at that point. Oh, right. Sure I mean, the shaft sure. had to be a pretty hard left turn. Yeah. Yeah. And hooray for that. If you ever get a chance to look up the clip, the, the YouTube clip of of Isaac Hayes performing shaft at the Oscars. Watch it. Any chance you get, watch wow. that. It's beautiful. Best foreign film, also Golden Bear at the Berlin Film Festival, went to the Garden of the Fitzy Contini's. I, which I'm I've not ashamed, seen the Garden of the Fitzy I'm Contini's. I'm to say I, too, am in the dark on that particular title. I, I've I've never heard of this in my Man, life. Man, listen to us. Listen to the listen. Just three ugly. Oh, Americans this is Vittoria De Sica. Uh, yeah, I, I yeah. probably should have heard of this by now. Uh, yeah. You guys can edit out the part where I admit I've never heard of this movie. Fair, right? done, done. Consider it's, it it's about a Jewish family. <laughs> this is good for the Jews. I God, yep. I gotta see this. 
Yep, there we go. Some other significant award winners. Golden Globe for Best Film, Comedy, Musical, and for Best Actor to Topol for Fiddler on the Roof. For Fiddler, I just put like three extra Fiddler. syllables in that. You want to try that? Fiddler on the Roof. Ch- Charles, I'm not trying to be like, you know, I, I, I don't know how to make this a smooth transition, but you've talked about your Jewishness on the show thus far. I brought it up. You're, you're good to jump in. Go for How, it. where do you land on the fiddler on the roof then? I, I love fiddler on the roof. I think it's, it's kind of, you get kicked out if you don't. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, it's just like, it is such a towering. I, I, I'm a huge musical guy. I did theater as a, as a lad, like many uh, Jewish boys uh, and fiddler. I mean, the songs are incredible, but when you watch it, it's just such an incredible testament to Jewishness. It is about yeah. shadow life and it's about, you know, it's the, the song. It says it all. Tradition. It's it's an incredible movie. It's super funny. Uh, it has a lot of you know, kind of uh, borscht belty humor translated through an older era. You know, with a my wife. Uh, no, I love it. <laughs> I love it so much. And the bottle dance is super cool. And it's just it, it's it Topol's amazing, and it's so good. Uh, I I will tell you that both Michael Hull and myself appeared in a production of Fiddler on the Roof uh, <laughs> when we were in high school. Were either um, of you Tevia? Uh, no, I was. Uh, who's the boring one? Uh, the teacher guy. I was. <laughs> he's so dull. It's the most boring part in the show. Uh, whichever the the teacher is that marries like the second old, oldest sure. daughter, and Mike was. You were the old rabbi, right? Am I remembering that correctly, Michael? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sure Performed the marriage. That's a good yes, one. Yeah. <laughs> did. did you did you have to wear a fake beard? <laughs> he sure did. I I did have to wear a fake beard, but yes. the thing is, there's no you could fake the singing. You didn't have to actually sing. Yes. to play that part, you could sort of like talk your way through. Yes. and I couldn't sing with a good goddamn. Right so that was. And keep in mind, <laughs> it was it was actually it was good casting. We were in Wichita, Kansas too, so I believe this was an all Goyim uh, <laughs> production of Fiddler on one hundred percent audience 100%. and and yes, performance. you know that's like that's a great American tradition. Honestly. Yes, it is. <laughs> Yes, it is. All right, Mike, what were some of the other significant award winners? It's time to colonize the whites. No, it's <laughs> fine. Uh, let's see. Golden Globe for Best Actress Comedy Musical went to Twiggy for The Boyfriend. A film I'm ashamed to say I've not seen. I did not know that Twiggy was an award winner. That's uh, There you go. Yeah. There you go. Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress went to Anne Margaret for Carnal Knowledge. That's a like fucking the, movie. The well of sex movies. It, it, I mean, it's a deep, deep well. I was, I was pretty close to picking that one as well, which definitely fits in with this. Uh, although Ooh. I love, I love Carnal Knowledge because, and I, I think because. I, I enjoy being in a relationship, and so whenever I see movies about people who just like lose their minds whenever they start to feel themselves falling in love with someone, I'm like, why can't you just be happy? Just be good to the women in your life. How hard is that? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, great movie, and that is, and that is, that's a great Anne Margaret performance. Like, holy oh, shit, she's, she's so good in that movie. She's holy so good. Shit. Rita Moreno, unbelievable. Oh my god, she oh, has one fuck. scene and she yes. just destroys it. Yes. Yes, she does. So good. BAFTAs for Best Film, uh, Best Director for John Schlesinger, Best Actor Peter Finch, Best Actress Glinda Jackson for Sunday Bloody Sunday. That's that's a that's a fine motion picture right there, Sunday Bloody Sunday. A political film uh, out from outside of, you know, American interest, uh, right? Or what am I thinking of? Yeah, 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 yeah. Pondor can also BAFTAs for Best Supporting Actor to Edward Fox, Best Supporting Actress to Margaret Layton, and Best Screenplay to Harold Pinter for The Go-Between. Haven't seen it. 
Uh, I th- saw that they did the Pinter series at Metrograph a while back, and I think I oh, saw yeah. it there. Uh, he was a real. He was. You want to talk about people who are real perverts? Harold Pinter was. Uh, <laughs> he he was great. Uh, Joseph Losey's The Servant, uh, which I believe he also wrote, is like one of the mm. great movies about uh, how doing it can be an act of political rebellion. There you go. Uh, National Society of Film Critics Award for Best Film went to Claire's Knee. Oh, Claire's Knee is so fucking good. I love oh, um, God. when you see Claire's Knee in that movie. <laughs> yes, it's a great moment. It's like they should title the movie after this. <laughs> of course. And the New York Film Critics Circle Award for Best Film went to A Clockwork Orange. Hey, how about that New York well Film deserved. Critics Circle with the... Uh, with the the ballsy pick that particular a good bunch year. that was that was the the Lady Gaga for House of Gucci of its year <laughs> yes it was a bold choice a bold choice domestic box office top ten number ten was Willard I haven't seen Willard how do you like that that's the one with all them rats oh, well, I was gonna say I saw the Crispin Glover one uh, this is this this one is 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 superior in my I would have to imagine opinion. right usually remakes <laughs> with Crispin Glover aren't better than things not typically. No. <laughs> Number nine was The Last Picture Show. Yep. Uh, definitely not the last movie. Uh, number eight was Carnal Knowledge. Number seven, Clockwork Orange. Can you wrap your head around any of these movies being in the top these? ten of, like, today? Ugh. No, these were the moneymakers that year. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. I mean, there's some lame ones coming up. Yeah. Well, yeah, the n- number six was Dirty Harry. I think that would have a shot. Hold on. Yes, it would. Yes, it would. But here's the thing: Dirty Harry, as 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 Paul as Pauline Kael, friend of uh, our, our our patron saint Pauline Kael, noted, deeply fascist film, also incredibly well made, incredibly entertaining. Just Don Siegel, just one of the best to ever fucking do it. Dirty I, uh, Harry's really good and also really bad uh, politically. So I, I wrote one of my term papers in like my, the in my college uppermost college class on Dirty Harry because my professor was adamant that like everything you need to know about filmmaking you can get either from wizard of oz or dirty harry which i was like that seems true that's that that seems about right (laughs) i like that theory honestly it works works it covers a lot of ground those two sure does number five diamonds are forever sure bond sure sure bond sure uh, number four was Summer of 42. Just talk about a movie that is just like vanished zero from the cultural, memory. Zero cultural footprint. Yeah, you don't the see, Avatar don't see of its day. tweeting Summer of 42 memes these days. <laughs> it was an open lane, Charles. Uh, number three was The French Connection. Yeah. Number two, it had to come up. You know it's going to come up. Billy yeah. Jack. Come Billy on. Jack, Billy baby. Jack. Billy Jack was a cultural force. Billy Jack mania had seized America. <laughs> it's an amazing story. Like if we won't get into it here, but if you get a chance to like, look up like how Billy Jack made all that fucking money and the way that he just like took the movie back and four walled it all over the country and turned it into a thing. It's like a, it's actually kind of an, an incredible the story. Billy Jack is that it tapped into something because it's like the counter counterculture movie where it's like, yes. if you fucking hated all those hippies and you don't like how things are changing, uh, this is, it was like the Yellowstone of its day basically <laughs> i have said that so many things were the thing of its day in, this, it's in the course fine. of this podcast it's fine it's a good construction it's fine it works and uh number one with 40 million 1971 dollars fiddler on the roof good for the jews baby Yes, that's right. All right. <laughs> so all in all, that's a good, that's a solid top 10. There's like mostly good movies in that year's top 10. Yeah. Uh, all right, Charles, you up for a lightning round? Yes, I'm so excited. There are so many good movies that came out this year. 
Okay, great. All right, then just bang right through. Just pass. I got, her, I pass got the list Tell right me. Uh, Andromeda okay. Strain. You've got uh, Bananas, which is my favorite Woody Allen movie. I still hold think on. I give them to movie. you, Charles. I give them to you. You gotta, you gotta let, you gotta let me feed them to you. Oh, I, I, I misunderstood what the lightning round is. Let's take it from the top. <laughs> here we go. Five minutes on the clock, and here we go. Elaine May's A New Leaf. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I love A New Leaf. I love Elaine May. There, there's a movie, uh, again, someone with a very uh, sophisticated uh, sex and romance viewpoint. Uh, John Cassavetes, Minnie and Moskowitz. Uh, has one of my favorite lines where uh, Seymour Castle says, I think about you so much I forget to go to the bathroom. That's uh, that's that's <laughs> love right there. <laughs> Mind-blowing fact, in the same year that they put out Dirty Harry, Don Siegel and Clint Eastwood also released The Beguiled. That is a, another like ripely sexual movie. You look at Clint Eastwood and you're like, yeah, okay, I would be driven to murder by that. That makes sense. <laughs> uh sweet sweet backs badass song that i was very very close to including which was also like uh it, it was another one of the big ones that i discovered in college and that i love so much and it's just like so bravely experimental and shows los angeles in a way that i had never seen it before which is crazy because if you watch movies you spend your whole life seeing it and it's just all yeah. these neighborhoods shot in this uh totally fresh way i love that movie great double feature with sweet sweet back willy wonka and the chocolate factory I think uh, the chocolate factory is what they called sweet, sweet bags penis. Man. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do. I do love the, uh, the Gene Wilder, Willy Wonka. He's great. You know, he's great. He's great. I, I like him more than the songs in that one. I think because, because cheer up Charlie is in the movie, right? Mm-hmm, I hate that goddamn song. Whenever yeah. I was a child and I was feeling bummed out about something, which happened a lot because I was a morose child, someone oh, no. always would think they were so funny in singing that. Oh to me. no! And I was like, "I will attack you!" Oh no, bro! It's the Mikey likes it of oh. uh, it's, it's your Mikey likes it. Like imagine being a fat kid in 1986 and like anything, <laughs> anytime you try to eat fucking celery, oh, does Mikey like it? Blah blah. That's yeah, a tough yeah, break. I feel you. Oh, that. that's a tough break. Tough break. Monty Hellman's Two Lane Blacktop. Uh, one of I know one of Vic's favorite movies of all time. Uh, a huge influence on Mad Men. Great film. Love Tulane Blacktop. Harold and Maude by Hal Ashby. Another hot, hot movie. No, I guess I'm joking about that. One, but that's a very <laughs> sweet film. You know, it's I, yeah. I think for this time that I think is wrapped up in all these adult themes. I think that's a very, very sweet movie. Barbara Loden's Wanda. Just another incredible female character study. I feel like Wanda and Brie Daniels would be good friends. Roger Vadim's Pretty Maids all in a row. It, I mean, I, I think by this point in the podcast, it's like easy to assume where I fall on a movie like this. <laughs> where it was like, I'll, I'll take three of those every year until this- I die. Pretty Maids in a Row may be pervier than either of the actual porn movies that you selected. <laughs> well, um, because that's the thing. It is all about, it's it's about vibe. And he, that man, God bless him, was, a, mm-hmm. was an absolute pervert. All right. This one's a deep cut. So no, no shame if you haven't seen it. Um, uh, the Seven Minutes from. This one is not known to me. Okay, this well, this was the this was the movie that Russ Meyer made after Beyond the Valley of the Dolls for 20th Century Fox, ah. um, and it's a, a kind of a, it's its reputation is that it's talky and there's not enough sex in it. So there you go, yeah. uh, Charles Bromesco. Have you seen the Telephone Book? I have. Thoughts on the Telephone Book? Uh, I'm I'm pro the Telephone Book. I let's see. I, I I know I've seen it, but now I'm googling it because I can't remember what happens in this movie um it's it's oh yeah okay yes it's it's a nutty movie yeah 
Yes, it's the phone sex love movie. <laughs> um, again, you know, a lot of X-rated films. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's a it's it's a fun one. Uh, the thing about when you watch a lot of adult movies is that because their aesthetics and intentions and often cast members and tropes are so similar, and I feel this way about kung fu movies as well, is that it's very difficult to remember what happens in which movie and like which one is which. I feel this about Giallo to an extent as well, that like whenever you get really deep into genre, you start to things start to smear together mentally. Um, and, uh, we, we, I guess this is the one to close it out with both in terms of something we've mentioned and an appropriate closing title, the last movie, uh, Dennis Hopper, just, uh, being a complete maniac trying to destroy the medium from the inside out, just throwing away all of the cachet he had built up with easy rider, like a boss. Uh, what's there to say? I love that. <laughs> Before we end the lightning round, I'd said, I'm going to start throwing these in like, this happened on the last episode too. The two best titles I found, which I can't imagine are movies you've seen. Uh, Chrome and hot leather was released in 1971. As was, this was the full title of the motion picture. Honky. Honky came out in 1971. <laughs> That's actually the title of my biopic. Why would you say there that? We, about- there, <laughs> there we go. All right. Thanks as usual to John Willis's screen world film annual for uh, helping me put together the lightning round um and now before we go charles romesco let's talk a bit about colors of film the story of cinema in 50 palettes just lay out the concept of the book because it's such a cool idea for for just as a concept it's just a great high concept book what is what is the pitch what's the elevator pitch yeah so i mean um it is basically i selected uh 50 movies that i think best uh illustrate the full spectrum of how color uh can be used in cinema of the technology of color of the history of how the film industry has worked with color those are really the three big uh ways that i thought about it as a book about technology a book about history and a work of criticism about uh, film. And so we've got, you know, all these beautiful uh, printings of the specific frames that I selected, uh, each of which corresponds to a little, I guess, mini essay of like 400 to 500 words about uh, these movies. And the neat thing is uh, each of these uh, stills from the films that has been printed in the book comes with specific color codes that you can look up uh, that, you know, are precise hues. And so you know that you are seeing the correct uh, color, uh, which is, you know, a big point of obsession as you start writing a book like this, because if you Google, you know, any frame from a film, you're going to see so many different warped versions, so many different tinted versions. And so it's, it's uh, imperative that you know what is the real, you know, color uh, for something that's so permeable. It's, it's the, I believe the first film book that ever comes, came with swatches. I mean, these are basically like, swatches, if, you, yeah. if you really like the color, what of, a fucking cool idea. If you really like the color of the apartment wall in Chunking Express, you can take this book to Home Depot and they'll, they'll replicate you it. Go, you go to your interior decorator and you say, make my home look like songs yes. from the second floor by Roy Anderson. And he says, you got it. <laughs> yes. It's a beautiful book. It's, it's, it's. You know, it's a handsome, you know, uh, there's some connotation to it, but you can put it on a coffee table and it's fun to get up and flip through. But also, you know, Charles is a terrific writer and these essays are really smart and insightful. But, you know, what I think I love most about this book as a concept 
And in its execution is the simple fact of the matter is that too much contemporary film writing, and I am guilty of this frequently myself, is entirely too focused on uh, narrative, on plot, on dialogue, on, you know, that there's there is not a lot of great writing about form. There is not a lot of really smart stuff out there about the aesthetics of film. And this is a hobby horse that, that Matt Zoller cites, our friend friend of mine has has gone on quite a bit about. But I think he's right. And it's and and the fact that you do so in such a in such a direct head-on way that you're going to write about aesthetics for for a full book and really do it eloquently. Um I think it's just is really admirable and tremendous. I think it's a great book. And oh, well, that's, um, that's really nice of you to say. I mean, the, the rewarding thing about writing this is that in the course of researching this and watching all these movies, I learned so much. And specifically, if you're writing about color, you have to start learning about costuming and you have to start learning about set design. Right. And like the particulars of cinematography, about makeup. Uh, and so you develop a new appreciation for craft. Uh, I It's totally changed the way I watch movies. I notice things I never noticed before. And hopefully after reading it, um, people might get a little bit of that as well. Well, yeah, I mean, I would, I would say I would, one of the great, anytime that you can write a book that sort of rewires your brain in terms of how you watch movies after that, that is fucking, that is time well spent. Yeah, and, that's, uh, that's, that's the big reward, I guess. Yeah. All right. So the book, uh, this will drop on a Sunday and the book will be out uh, the following Tuesday. Charles, where can folks pick it up that most benefits you? Uh, I, I believe it's all equal to me. And so I okay. would say you should pick it up somewhere that benefits the place that you're going, you know, local bookstore, which I believe will be stocking it. Uh, if you're here in my beautiful home of New York City, baby, the Big Apple, uh, it's going to be available all over the place. So if you go to the Museum of the Moving Image, I know they will have it in their store. Yeah. <clears throat> you mentioned our pal Matt Zoller Sites, who runs an online book retailer, and he will have that as well. I think we're going to set up some situation where I'm going to autograph some copies and there you go selling those uh it, it includes my favorite color which is a jealously guarded secret and you're only gonna get Ooh. that if you get the autograph book um and so yeah Sold. it's uh it's 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 exciting stuff all right well congratulations on it charles um where can people follow you on social media uh, I am on Twitter. Uh, if you type in Charles Bromesco, that's the username. The little at is uh, Into the Crevasse, which is a reference to 30 Rock. Uh, and that is where I do most of, I post my work and I do my tomfoolery. That's, uh, that's, that's the place to be. All right. Well, you can follow me on Twitter at Jason-Bailey or on Instagram at Fun City Cinema. Mike, where can the folks follow you? I am on Twitter at Brainwashed Lib. And uh, before we, we throw it out, we're going to go to our friend uh, W. Axel Foley, who has a PSA for you, the listener. Head on over to your favorite podcasting app. Give us a star, a rate, a review. Give us a written review and tell us that you love us, because that's what lets people know that we're here. All right. And Mike, before we go, what is your favorite movie of the year 1971? Oh, man, this one's super personal, dude. Uh, we already mentioned the the Attica movie. My favorite movie of 71 is The Murder of Fred Hampton, uh, which sort of made me want to do what I do. Mm. And uh, then when I was working on the movie, going back and watching that again was really influential in terms of just sort of having the sack to say it. 
and really go for it, you know, and, and make the movie I wanted to make. And then we managed to get it on HBO. And now if you go and you ask them what to watch for Black History Month, my movie's sitting right next to the murder of Fred Hampton. And I don't really see how I'm going to have like a personal career highlight moment that tops that ever. So uh, I know that's like an, an indulgent, like cunty thing to say no. for my favorite movie of 1971, but there it is. How about you, Jason? Uh, I'm cheating a little bit and I went with the double feature, but it's a good double feature. I went with the uh, New York City Rotten Apple heroin chic double feature of the Panic in Needle Park and Born to Win. Uh, both released in the Ooh. same calendar year. Ooh. Both movies about being just a straight up fucking junkie in New York in the early 1970s. All rich and atmospheric, also full of dark comedy and great lead performances by Al Pacino and Kitty Wynn in Panic at Needle Park and George Siegel in Born to Win. And also plug, if you pick up the Fun City Editions Born to Win Blu-ray, I promise this isn't why I chose it specifically, but you will hear Mike and I doing an audio commentary for that particular motion picture uh, on that Blu-ray. So there we go. But also very personal. I saw both of these movies not long after I moved to New York at a film forum, New York in the 70s, retrospective, and I would say the germs of the book began to formulate at that time so yes personal as well the um honestly like everything that we've talked about i'm looking at this wikipedia article this just list of american films in 1971 we have covered maybe half of the good oh movies yeah covered oh that yeah came out that year just if you look at this and just pick a movie at random you're probably going to watch something that's like a stone cold classic pretty much all we've right we've talked about 1971 for more than an hour and uh, and panic and needle park starring al pacino didn't come out Just until kept... the very fucking end it's a deep well <laughs> it's a deep well all right thank you again charles it's been a pleasure thank you guys for having me thank you mike thank you jason and thank you for listening it was a very 